Welcome. I'm your host, Kendra Hall, and you are listening to the Getting Research into Practice podcast, the series in which we ask research and industry professionals in different agriculture sectors some burning industry questions to find out what makes a successful innovation. Hi, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's great. Great to be here. Thank you for the invite. Absolutely. Why don't we get started? You can tell me a bit about your background and your role at the university. Absolutely. So my um, my training is as a weed scientist uh, working in field crops. I, uh, I did an undergrad and a master's uh, here at the University of Guelph and then um, pursued my PhD uh, in England, University of Reading. Went straight from there to uh, to Winnipeg, University of Manitoba after my PhD and was a faculty member there for for just a little over a decade, working in field crops and weed management and field crops and teaching uh, as well. And uh, then I had the fortune to come back to the University of Guelph to be a department chair uh, for a little while, uh, moved into a role as associate dean external, and uh, a little over five years ago became dean of the college. And um, in my role as dean, uh, I have fiscal and uh, HR responsibilities and strategic responsibilities for the college going forward. Absolutely. How did you kind of get into that or why did you start doing what you do and what kind of effect does it have on the research coming out of the Ontario Agricultural College? I grew up on a farm and so I had an innate interest in agriculture. I always knew that I wanted to be involved in agriculture in some way, shape or form, but I also really uh, enjoyed school <laughs> and uh, and learning, and I also enjoyed uh, research. So I, I found that in um, senior undergrad, I did a, an undergraduate research project. I really enjoyed that, uh, and that that led me to pursue a master's and a PhD and and to pursue research, and um, and through that I, I knew I wanted to be in academia in a in a teaching and, and research uh, position. So. Um, but I also wanted to be uh, in that kind of a position involved in agriculture. And because I grew up on a farm and, and had, um, had that interest in, in what was happening uh, in practical terms on the farm, I also wanted to be involved with farmers and, uh, and in seeing uh, knowledge in action, really. So uh, my research work was always uh, working with farmers. Um, and. And I think it showed me that uh, you could have a very successful career crossing those boundaries between basic and applied research um, and a very uh, rewarding career if you were feeling that you were impacting uh, farmer practices, for example. Absolutely. I'm sure you see lots of research come across your desk. What kind of big challenges or um, changes and stuff do you see researchers, specifically in agriculture, facing in getting their research into practice? So the adoption of their research on farm and industry? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that the, the biggest um, impediment is, is time. Uh, and and I, I think this is just uh, um, common for everyone. You know, we, we all have so many uh, calls on our time, and that's no different for faculty members. Um, you know, they, they have teaching responsibilities. Uh, increasingly, research uh, requires an awful lot of administration, uh, more administration, I would say, than, than even 10 years ago. Uh, and so uh, they find a time crunch. And, um, and so they have less time to network. Uh, they have less time to uh, be doing uh, meetings with farmers. They have less time to interact with their OMAFRA colleagues. And, and that impacts um, 
that impacts the profile of their research, uh, but it also impacts their ability to translate their research directly through conversations uh, to farmers. So I, yeah, I, I would say that's, that's probably the, the, the biggest challenge uh, going forward. Yeah, do you think that'll kind of be the biggest challenge moving forward? Like what other challenges do you anticipate maybe will grow or develop in the future, maybe as technologies change? Yeah, I, I uh, and, and I don't mean to be pessimistic, but I, I see it, I see that getting even more challenging. And, and one of the reasons, and it's, it's, it's kind of a good news, bad news story. But one of the reasons is that uh, we see um, such an expansion of the demands on and the relevance of the agriculture and food sector to society. So, you know, not only is it um, uh, the source of food, for example, but uh, society is increasingly recognizing that agriculture is inextricably linked to the environment, uh, can be a solution provider in climate change. Uh, the the uh, breadth of uh, food products uh, continues to expand uh, all sorts of expectations and characteristics uh, related to, for example, uh, animal welfare and, and behavior. Um, people are interested in food security. Increasingly, people relatively commonly are interested in things like soil health, uh, for example. And, and everybody's looking to the agriculture and food sector for all of those things. And so the demands are expanding. It's very exciting. I mean, it's, it's good to be wanted, that's for sure. <laughs> but it also uh, means uh, that we have challenges. The other thing that's really important uh, in that regard is that those demands accumulate they don't trade off. So it's not like people are like, oh yeah, no, we don't need food safety anymore, but we were, everything accumulates. And so, um, so our, our abilities, our capacity has to grow. And, um, and that's something that I do a lot for is advocating for growth of our capacity. Absolutely. With lots of these kind of big challenges coming and, and obviously challenges lead to innovation. What uh, innovations maybe have you seen put into practice that have had a really big impact on agriculture in the last few years? Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm going to go back more than than the last few years. That's okay. I, I would I would say I would say a really good example of of the impact of of innovation on agriculture is um, is plant and animal breeding. Um, you know, plant and animal breeding uh, and all of the, the, the knowledge and the technologies associated with that and the advancement, the modernization have, have led to tremendous growth in genetic, in the genetic potential of the cultivars that we have out there and the genetic potential of the animals uh, that we have out there, as well as the efficiency of those animals. So, uh, you know, I, th I think we take that for granted, uh, truly. And we don't understand that that the capacity of of those plants and those animals uh, is in many cases doubled or tripled or quadrupled or ten times uh, what it used to be, um, and that means that we can produce a, a heck of a lot more with the resources that we have. Um, so yeah, that's I'm, and that's something that certainly in my lifetime, I was born in the '60s, uh, we've seen uh, accelerate, and. Uh, and the potential there uh, continues to be um, tremendous uh, as well. And there's a lot more interest now in terms of, of genetic um, plant breeding, genetic technologies for resiliency in both plants and animals, uh, especially in, in light of things like climate change, uh, as an example. 
Absolutely. What are some of the kind of big research areas? Um, obviously, you see a lot of research coming out of the OAC. What kind of uh, trends, patterns do you see that makes you think uh, of up and coming research that might be making a really big impact in agriculture in the future, near future? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's no surprise what I'm going to say, and that's uh, data and artificial intel intelligence driven innovation, um, which will lead to further automation and uh, further precision uh, in agriculture. Um, automation has been something that's been happening in agriculture forever. You know, uh, so much innovation has been about automation and removing um, labor from, from farming. And I think we'll uh, continue to see that happening, uh, but we'll also see it um, bleed out into uh, uh, industries that service farming outside the farm gate, uh, which is good news because uh, one thing we struggle with is finding enough people to come into the agriculture and food sector. So I think we will welcome those innovations of, of AI and automation. Uh, and it's good news for consumers as well, because uh, it can lead to things like um, a reduction in, for example, fertilizer use, uh, less impact on the environment, uh, continued reduced cost of food, uh, continued efficiency in terms of uh, the amount of carbon uh, that's in the equation for agriculture. So I, I see that as, as, a, as a tremendous area, and that's happening now. Yeah, absolutely. There's kind of a labor shortage across most agricultural industries right now. So Ab absolutely. absolutely it's, the future. Uh, yeah, absolutely the future. That's right. For sure. Can you maybe give an example of some research uh, you've seen, you've been involved in maybe, um, that's been really successfully applied, really adopted really well, and what do you think made it so successful, or what makes a project very successful in its uh, adoption? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to uh, plant breeding uh, for, for an example. Um, so crop cultivars have been extraordinarily successful as a, an agricultural technology. Uh, and the reason that that's been successful is because it's very simple for farmers to adopt that technology. Uh, there's a very direct impact on uh, yield and profit. Uh, it fits the cash flow models that farms have, and it's um, and it fits all sorts of scales of farm, including very large scale farms. And so, so the adoption is easy for farmers, and therefore they adopt it. and And I think that's a that's a key key lesson for us. Um, you know, I I uh, when I was in Manitoba, I, I taught an undergraduate weed science course for many many years, and uh, and I would do a, th a three or four week uh, section in that course on non-herbicidal weed control. So managing weeds without using herbicides. And at the end of that section, I would show the stats on herbicide use in Western Canada, where 98% of the annually cropped acres were sprayed with herbicide every year. And then we'd have a discussion uh, with the students around why that was. I mean, if there are other tools, you know, why are farmers adopting herbicides, you know, as the absolute number one tool for weed management? And they had lots of good answers, and 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 they had answers like uh, cash flow. Uh, you know, uh, it's hard to diversify uh, cropping systems when it doesn't fit with your cash flow model. For example, um, culture was another was another one. You know, how does it fit uh, in the conversation? Is it part of the conversation? Uh, is it seen as progressive? Uh, is it something that people desire and and are looked up to for doing? So those kinds of things are, are really, really important. Uh, and they make it, if they fit, they make it easier for people to adopt the talk technology and it takes off. 
Absolutely. Maybe on the, the flip side as well, obviously not every research project is perfect. Um, have you ever kind of seen projects that have failed to be applied, maybe didn't quite make that step? And what do you think could have uh, changed and, and kind of where to make it more successful? There was, there was something that was uh, a lot of people talked about in the 80s and 90s, and it was, uh, it was with the advent of personal computers, and they were called decision support systems. And, and really what, what those were was, uh, I would say, an early form of artificial intelligence. Um, you know, uh, researchers would build models, uh, and they would uh, suppose that farmers would use these models to help make decisions on things like yeah, I'm going to use the example of, of weed management because it's something I know well. Um, but, you know, we had this notion that farmers would uh, assess, you know, how many weeds they had and then uh, decide on, on not only whether they would spray herbicides or not, but which herbicides and at what rates based on the density of herbicides in their fields. Um, and they would use the models uh, that we built, uh, mathematical models that we built to, to help uh, with predictions and make those decisions. That technology never, ever was adopted. It never took off. And, and the reason it didn't is because, um, uh, one, the models weren't that great. Uh, the, the prediction had a, had a wide variance of accuracy uh, because it was hard to get data. And two, uh, farmers were never going to make that measurement around density because it was just impractical. So so those are, you know, I think that's a, an, an example that has good lessons in it. You know, if the technology is not quite ready and, uh, and if the technology uh, does not take into account the, real, the practical reality of farming. And so those, those technologies, those decision support systems were created without talking to farmers. <laughs> that's a big mistake. That's a big mistake. Yeah, absolutely. Practicality is key. It has to, it has to yep. help with something, right? Fill the niche. What are some other kind of big barriers uh, that you've seen kind of implementing new innovations? Again, this answer is not going to be a surprise as a, as a dean of a college, but funding for research is <laughs> a, it's a barrier. You know, it, uh, th there, there is no end to, to the need for, for research funding. And um, and you know, farm, farm and commodity group organizations have been great at lobbying on our behalf for increasing uh, research funding uh, to both provincial and federal governments. And, uh, and we really appreciate it. Uh, and they put their own money in the game as well because they know that uh, faculty will then lever that with, uh, with more money. Um, but they also know that, uh, that you know, there's an endless number of questions that, uh, that they want faculty to work on and so there's always a need for more money. What's exciting is that um, because of the, the broadening relevance of the agriculture and food sector, we find increasingly that our faculty are able to tap into uh, money in, uh, in broader areas like um, environment and climate change or uh, human health and, uh, and so, so that's good news. Uh, the other thing that's a, that's a barrier and I mentioned it uh, earlier is, is attracting people. And, and we have a challenge in attracting enough students to the agriculture and, and food sector uh, who then you know, might become or are graduate students. And, and as we know, graduate students really drive so much of the research. And so attracting enough students uh, is also a big challenge for us. And, and it's, 
it's an enigma of a challenge. You know, we, we are insiders and so we don't understand it because we're excited about the industry. We know all the opportunities. It's, it's boundless. It's exciting. It has impact on the world. But for most people, it's a secret. And, uh, and when they look at it from the outside, they see farms. And, and most people have a deep respect for farms. They really appreciate farmers, but they don't see themselves in farming. They, they have no idea of what's behind those farms and the industry that surrounds them and the tremendous opportunities. And so getting that, work, that word out is, is our number one priority, actually. Absolutely. What's, uh, so we all know innovation is a, is a really big key in, in breaking down barriers and innovation in Ontario, especially the livestock sector, kind of works best when industry, academia and government work together. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how maybe that partnership can be improved? Yeah, I, I, think, you, I think you have it in the, in the question in part, uh, but it is all about relationship building uh, and building social network. Uh, you know, the Livestock Research Innovation Corporation, uh, Mike uh, McMorris and Gene Howden, I think are doing a great job uh, and doing the right things by, and it sounds simple, but by bringing people together. Uh, you know, they're, they're doing things to bring people together who might not have met themselves, met, met each other otherwise. Um, so they get to know each other, they, they talk, uh, they get to know each other's worlds. And if they talk about challenges that they're having, there's a greater possibility they can work together on solutions. Um, I think Mike and Gene understand that at a very fundamental level. And they know that that will pay dividends uh, the more they can bring people uh, together. Uh, COVID has, has made that a little bit challenging um, because it, it starts as a, as a social thing. It's, it's better face-to-face. -face. Um, but just, you know, just yesterday, uh, for example, um, Mike and Jean were, were hosting a tour of the beef and dairy facilities at Alora with uh, new faculty, uh, including new faculty from uh, the School of Engineering and uh, getting them to know our world. And uh, I was able to be there for part of it. It was, it was a fascinating tour that Tyson was leading. But um, yeah, that, those kinds of things really do make a difference and, and, uh, and we need to do more of it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Hopefully we'll, we'll add that podcast, this podcast to that list. <laughs> what uh, maybe advice do you have for an early career researcher or do you wish you had maybe earlier in your career uh, to help with getting research into practice that would have helped maybe improve uh, the application of it? Yeah, I mean, following on, on the last question, my advice would be get to know people, find avenues for getting to know people, um, get to know their world, understand their issues, see where there are real problems to work on and understand the context of those solutions so that they can be more readily adopted. You know, my example of, of the failure of the decision support systems is, is a good example in that uh, in, in those cases, you know, we didn't get to know people, didn't get to know their world, didn't get to to understand what the real problems were that they they wanted solved. So that would be my advice. And, and don't be shy. Don't be shy. People love to talk about, you know, their world. It's, it's, an, it's a natural default for people. Yeah, absolutely. People, I know, especially academia, people love to talk about their research. So always ask well, and, and, and And farmers and industry folks, it's the same. You know, they, and it often tends to go towards, you know, I've been having this problem with X, Y, or Z, and this isn't working. And you really learn things. Absolutely. Collaboration is key. 
What uh, tool or resource, resource do you see being used within the uh, OAC that is really useful and really gets, uh, gets moving forward on getting the research into practice? I, I mean, I, again, this is a this is a building on 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 things I've I've, I've been saying. But our our network, you know, we have a we have a vast network of alumni. Uh, I think we have over forty thousand alumni from OIC, living alumni from OIC. Uh, we have a vast network of of students. Uh, we have around four thousand students in in OIC. Um, we have a, a great network of industry partners. Uh, we have over 150 faculty, we have about a thousand staff. Uh, so, so I think that network um, is very powerful, uh, and it's it's a network of people who've all who are already working in that vein, and uh, and I and I think exploiting that more and more, uh, which you know Elric is uh, is working to do, is the right thing to do, and and that will lead to to more positive outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, those are, those are all my questions for you today. Thank you so much for joining me and for all your great insight and advice. Well, thank you, Kendra. I, I, I really appreciate uh, this opportunity and, and the podcast and, and again, what's, what's being done to, to help us to get research into practice. Mm-hmm.